0: My my daughter, as you know, is in college, and she's actually not in college. She's in Southern California. She's on her way back for spring break. Um, Spring break is going on right now, and I'm looking forward to seeing her. She'll be back with Margo on Tuesday night. So I'm looking forward to that. But I was thinking about last year at this time... Last year at this time, we were getting a bunch of mail because she had not yet made her decision about where she wanted to go to college. So we got stuff in the mail, these beautifully printed brochures, gigantic cost of fortune to print and to mail. And, you know, they just show how awesome it is to go to this college. And, you know, there's a guy doing science on the front. And then there's some uh, young people being instructed by a professor in a green setting and all that kind of stuff. You've probably seen the same sort of things. So we got a bunch of these um, sort of uh, uh, catalogs. And now that she's made her decision, we're getting, um, uh, mail still, but now it's from the alumni office, not from the, um, admissions office. So, so this is from Iris's college, uh, um, so again, you can see there's a student who's doing research, some kind of climate, or, uh, creation care, they call it. So, uh, uh, we get that from her college. And of course, Margo is still getting, uh, mail from her college. So this is from the alumni association, uh, at her college. So you can see there's a picture of a senator on the front of, margo's magazine and then um i get it from my uh college so this is from my college and we don't have a senator we've got a minor somewhere in a mine shaft so um (laughs) so for what that's worth um and i tell you all this because because you know our colleges go to a lot of effort to present a persona they they want they want people to to, they, they want to craft their message they want to present an image to the public um that communicates um all the things we hope for right in the in the um in the admissions papers, there were things showing, you know, students sitting on the quad together, and the, they're always gender balanced. So you think that the ratio is not too bad, and it's not going to be like my school. So, um, so there's there's things like that um, in the, in these pictures. Uh, they show the students who are who are doing research and learning to learning to think critically and to engage with the world of ideas, to prepare themselves to make a lot of money when they graduate. And then they do the same thing for the, in the alumni things and the things they send to the parents. They send the pictures of the graduates, right? Because we want to think that there is a light at the end of that particular tunnel. So they present this particular image of what college would be like. And so you see these idyllic settings. Um, there's one right there, and then there's another one after that, I think. So, um, so uh, yeah, so actually this is the one after that. So the problem is that the image that the colleges send is not the only image we get of colleges. We get a lot of other images of colleges these days. This is a picture of a sit-in that was at the office. Wait, back up, please. Um, uh, yeah, this is at the president's office in Princeton University. So I walked by the college's uh, um uh, w- whenever I went over to the Princeton campus, I walked by that, that um, office, but I never got in the inside, and I certainly never occupied it. But you can see there's the president um, being lectured by a bunch of students, and um, sometimes it's, it's relatively peaceful. The president doesn't have any security with him there, but sometimes uh, it, gets, it gets a little uglier and people get in each other's faces. So you've probably seen pictures like the next one, where there's some kind of a protest and people are right up there in each other's uh, face, you know, telling each other no and you know they like this or they don't like that. So we've seen these sort of pictures before, and unfortunately, we've also seen pictures of things that are worse. So the next one shows you um, how these uh, the things sometimes turn into pro- progressions that get worse. Is the next one Middlebury? No. Okay. So so um, last year, a year ago, this month, uh, a social scientist, a political scientist named Charles Murray, went to um, went to Middlebury College in Vermont. Um, he was a, um, a bureaucrat in the Great Society. He was part of Johnson's uh, cabinet, helped to implement the Great Society. But he kind of uh, has questioned what he was doing, and so he's kind of changed sides. And so people on the institutional left don't like him very much, and you can see there's somebody who's pointing at him and saying he's a bad person. But it didn't stop there. there the protests turned violent, and actually the professor who had invited him... Um, was injured during the violence that occurred um, a year ago this month at Middlebury College. So the next thing, the the, the next slide, so she wrote uh, um, an article in the um, New York Times talking about how she got a concussion and whiplash uh, during the violence um, that happened when she was going to debate Charles Murray and say how his ideas were wrong. So she was actually on the anti-Murray side, but the protesters against Murray were really not in a mood to pay much attention, and so she was injured. So Professor Allison Stanger at Middlebury College. So she's talking there about the angry mob that gave her a concussion. So um, this is the, the situation that we see a lot of different images of colleges, and of course it doesn't stop with Middlebury College. That was actually very much part of a trend last year at this time. So um, in April, uh, well actually February all the way through April of last year, there were protests at Berkeley, the home of the free speech, mo- free speech movement in the 1960s, Berkeley had um, protests, and so um, uh, the uh, instigating event at one point was uh, this woman who spoke, a woman named um, Ann Coulter. She's a figure on the right, kind of a gadfly or columnist or something. And so she went to speak at uh, Berkeley, and they canceled her protest. Uh, they, they canceled her uh, talk due to the protest. And this next picture shows you why, um, because it got violent. And so you can see there, there's somebody from the antifa or anti-fascist movement getting slugged by somebody from the alt-right, um, and as a not as a pastor and not as a Christian, but as the father of somebody who's in college, my my thought when I see that picture is, couldn't they both get punched? So, um, so isn't there some way we could come together on this? But, but. Um, so uh he's a white supremacist. I forget the name of his organization and she's some kind of a um a radical, uh radical antifa person and uh, uh fist fights occurred. So um so this happened last April um after her after Ann Coulter's speech was um canceled and um sometimes it it turns to violence as we see there but sometimes it's not violence but it has an impact on for example the faculty um uh, this woman right here, those of you who read Breitbart or watch Fox probably know this woman. Her name is Melissa Flick. She was a member of the faculty at University of Missouri, and uh, because of this one photograph, um, she was fired by the college, and um, she lost her job at University of Missouri, and uh, was uh, subsequently hired at Gonzaga University. Um, but she lost her job over the protest that she was a part of. And this next picture is, uh, is another professor named Brett Weinstein, who was a professor at uh, Evergreen State University in Washington. And he was um, fired because he wouldn't participate in a particular protest. He refused to, partic- to, to protest with the other people. What's interesting to me is that Melissa Click was fired basically because of, because of people on the right saying she needed to be fired Brett Weinstein was fired because of people on the left saying he should be fired. So, uh it seems to cut across political political arguments uh, uh in that degree at least. And I tell you all this because our reading today has to do with power and in particular the power of a lynch mob. And and that's what I want to talk about. These lynch mobs um that are happening on campus. Now, I understand there is a world of difference between crucifying somebody and firing them. Okay? Brett Weinstein got a $500,000 settlement when he left um, uh, Evergreen State University. There's worse things than that than can happen to you. So I'm not saying that what happened to him it can in any way be compared to what happened to Jesus or even victims of lynch mobs down through history. Uh, he got off relatively easy, and so did Melissa Click. She had a new job within a few days, and so so there are worse things that can happen to you. But there is one way that I think the lynch mobs we see today are different which is they are impersonal. When the soldiers put the crown of thorns on Jesus' head, they saw him as they did it. When their buddies held him up and they took turns punching him in the face, they were there. They saw what it did to him. But today, all you've got to do is click like. And somebody a thousand miles away can have their job destroyed. In 2013... A woman named Justine Sacco. Do we have? Is that next? I hope. So, Justine Sacco was a, pr- a public relations executive, um, and uh, she she tweeted a joke, or she said it was a joke. Um, many people interpreted it as a racist comment about AIDS in South Africa. She was flying to South Africa, and she made this joke, thinking it was topical. And um, she got on the plane. And by the time she landed in South Africa, she she flew to Cape Town, and by the time she landed, this hashtag had gone viral. People wanted to know had she landed yet. And she was fired the next day by her employer, because they just didn't need a PR person who generated that kind of negative PR. Her email had hundreds of emails. She was a, a global trend on Twitter, and she lost her job over it. And The number of actual Twitter followers she had was a couple of hundred. But they tweeted and they retweeted and they retweeted. People who never knew her, who could not pick Justine Sacco out of a police lineup, helped to get her fired. So when I think about a lynch mob, I think that that lynch mobs are always around, and I think in some, some ways the modern era has actually made them easier. So what I want to do today is I want to talk about power because so often these lynch mobs that happen on campuses and elsewhere are focused on the idea of power. The idea is that there is power, that there is some elite that has power, and then there are the people they oppress with the power. So it's a a pretty simple dynamic. There's people with power and there's oppressors. And so what I want to do is I want to look at what this passage has to say about power and how it can be exercised. If I could if I could appeal to all the students on all the campuses in the country today, I would encourage them to read chapter 19 of John's gospel. We've been reading this passage for the last couple of weeks. And uh, one of the things that that is um uh helpful to me about our our uh, reading plan this year is that John is uh, it is it is uh, so lengthy. We're getting such a lengthy treatment of the passion narrative. Um, John uh, spends two chapters on the suffering and death of Jesus. The word passion, um, outside the church it has one meaning, but inside the church it means specifically the suffering and death of Jesus. And um, John spends two chapters on the suffering and death of Jesus, as does um, each of the other uh, writers of biographies of Jesus—Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke—they each spend two chapters. Even Mark, which is a much shorter gospel, um, he spends an enormous length of time uh, recounting the events of the passion of the Lord Jesus. And the reason for that is, in the first century, uh, they were they were saying, "We believe in a God who." Suffers And people would say, no, but gods don't suffer. They live up on Olympus, nothing ever harms them. Sometimes they come down and they toy with us, but nothing harms them. And all of the gospel writers, all of the uh, early church leaders, Paul writes about it in his letters, we see it in the gospels, they all said, no, there is a God who became a man and suffered. He suffered and died. And that was a remarkable thing, and they spent a great deal of time, longer longer treatments of his suffering and death than of the resurrection. Because that was such a remarkable thing to talk about, the God who had suffered and died. So we're reading about the passion. And sometimes uh, in churches we we kind of breeze through the passion. Uh, Maybe we we get it on Holy Thursday or Good Friday, but we don't spend as much time. Uh, Because of this reading plan, we're spending four out of our six weeks looking at the passion. So what I want to do is I want to look at um, chapter 19, the first half of chapter 19, and to catch us up where we left off last week, um, uh, Pilate has had a trial of Jesus. He's decided that Jesus is not guilty, and he wants to get Jesus um, out of his hands. He wants to, to release Jesus. And so he goes to the crowd and says, who should I release for the Passover lucky guy, right, who, who gets released? And he says, should I release Jesus? And they say, no, we want Barabbas. And then John concludes chapter 19 by saying, Barabbas was a revolutionary. And the reason for that is pretty obvious. The Romans didn't like revolutionaries. And if Barabbas and his friends came down out of the hills and attacked a, a Roman troop movement or something, um, then when the Romans got more troops back in that area to re-pacify that area, they would look at the villages and they would basically say, we think you're supporting those revolutionary bands, okay? And we're going to punish you so that other villages will know better than to support these revolutionaries. So what would it take for this crowd to say we want Barabbas, Barabbas the revolutionary. John leaves us uh, as, as we kind of move through the transition at the end of chapter 18 and begin chapter 19. That's the question that's in the air. So what does Pilate do? He tried to get Jesus released. The crowd said, no, we want this other guy, even though the other guy is really kind of a problem for us. Okay, but we want the other guy. So what does Pilate do? Pilate has Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. Now, You know, that's a remarkable thing because this is a brutal punishment. People died from being whipped. This is not like, you know, my daddy sometimes, you know, took a switch to us. This is a brutal flogging designed to inflict as much damage as possible. And Pilate has Jesus flogged. And then, if that's not enough, the soldiers have fun with him. They jam this crown of thorns on his head, and then they take turns punching him. And then Pilate puts him in this robe and um, brings Jesus out. And he says, look, here is the man. Why does he do that? I think Pilate is still trying to get Jesus off. He's saying, okay, they want this guy hurt for some reason. I'm going to find out, can I punish him less than crucifixion? They were calling for crucifixion. Maybe they'll settle for a really terrible beating. Okay. So he says, look, here he is. Okay, is this enough? Are you satisfied? And at this point, we don't hear what the crowd would have said, but we do read, that the leading priests and the temple guards began shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate says this odd remark. He says, take him yourself and crucify him. Pilate knows that they can't do that. It's illegal for them to crucify him. They would be guilty if they did. So I think what Pilate is doing here is he's saying, I have ruled out crucifixion. I've told you I don't think he's guilty of a capital crime. I'm not going to let you do that. If you do that, you know, you, you can, you can take him and crucify him. But I'll hold you accountable if you do. So Pilate says, take him yourself and find him, crucify him. I have already found him not guilty. And then the Jewish leaders say, by our law he ought to die because he called himself son of God. And when Pilate says this, he was frightened, more frightened than ever. Why was he more frightened? Well, because in that era, people were frightened. People thought that gods existed. Today we're so wise, we don't think gods existed. We as a culture, we think that things just happen with no reason. We don't necessarily understand them, but we just kind of say, oh, well, that's just too bad, right? In the first century, everybody was superstitious. Everybody believed in gods, and they may not have believed in the god that Jesus believed in, but they certainly believed in gods. Pilate would have believed in the gods, and he would have believed, oh, my goodness, that explains that weird conversation I had in chapter 18, why that guy did not act like somebody who was about to get crucified? He should have acted like somebody who knew that how much trouble he was in. But instead, he almost put me on trial. And now I realize why, because he was a god walking among the mortals. We read about this in chapter fourteen of Acts. Um, I think that's coming up here. So, chapter fourteen of Acts, Paul and Barnabas healed someone, and um, they—it's—it's uh, it's in there somewhere. So, um, so coming up. So, yeah, yeah. So, move along. Yeah. So somewhere up here, it'll catch up with us. Paul and Barnabas are um, in Asia Minor, and they heal somebody who's got a um, who's got uh, some kind of an ailment. They perform a miraculous healing, and the crowd goes nuts. They decide that this is uh, Zeus and Hermes walking among them, and they try to worship Zeus and Hermes. And Pilate is the same kind of person. Everybody in the first century would have been what we call today superstitious. So yeah, keep going. It'll, I'll, Let's just catch you up, okay, because I run ahead. All right, so here they are, Paul and, Paul and, um, Paul and Barnabas. They the, the crowd thinks that they are Zeus and Hermes. So um, Pilate is in that same place. He's thinking, oh, my God, you know, there's these lessons I've heard about, the gods who walk among us, and you have to treat them nice. And I just had this guy flogged. Oh, my goodness, I'm in trouble. So what does he do? He goes back in, and he says, where are you from? Are you from Olympus? you know am i really in trouble but jesus doesn't answer that question and so that irritates pilate he says don't you realize i have the power to release you or crucify you and jesus says whatever power you've got is delegated you wouldn't have any power at all if it weren't from above he says the one above you has handed handed uh, the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin so Jesus says, you don't have any power at all except what's been delegated to you, and you're misusing it. You're not using it well. He says, you are a tool of these people out here who are yelling. You think you've got all the authority there is, but you don't. He says, you're using it badly. And so Pilate tried to release him, but the Jewish leader shouted, if you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Caesar. Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. They say, we're going to send a delegation to Rome. We're going to complain about you. And because Tiberius is kind of paranoid all the time, he's going to decide you're trying to start some trouble over here. And so he's going to send uh, somebody to replace you. Or he may send somebody with a note that says, now would be a good time to commit suicide. Because P- Tiberius did that sometimes. So it's a real threat. But but Pilate survived this. We know that Pilate survived other challenges to his authority, that people would appeal to the emperor. We know that Pilate did that, so maybe he's worried, maybe not, but what finally settles the day is Pilate brings out Jesus one last time and he says to the people, look, here is your king, and they say, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate says, what, crucify your king? And they say, we have no king but Caesar. So Pilate turns them over to be crucified. See, what this story teaches us, is the limits of power. Jesus has all the power in the world. One of the slides that, that I didn't go over had, had a verse from chapter 13. Jesus has been given all the authority in the world. He knows that God the Father has given him all authority and um, he, he exercises it by washing his disciples' feet. Jesus has all the authority in the world. Pilate has a huge amount of authority. He is the viceroy. As long as the emperor is in Rome and as long as they don't have instantaneous communication and jets, right? he's got a great deal of authority. Now six months later, somebody can come along and, and tell him he did wrong. But today, his word is law. Whatever he says, it's as if Tiberius said it. There's nobody who can challenge what Pilate says. They both have tremendous authority. But do you see what happens? Jesus doesn't, ex- doesn't exercise his authority. Jesus does nothing with his authority. Pilate tries everything. Pilate tries one thing after another. But who achieves their purpose? Jesus is the one who achieves his purpose. Pilate tries and tries and tries again, and he is stymied at every step of the way. What better definition is there of powerlessness than to fail to achieve the thing that you want? They both have authority, but how do they execute it? They both have power. One gets what he wants, the other doesn't. So Pilate discovers that the crowd, the crowd is what the Romans called a mobile vulgus. This is a a Latin word. It means the fickle crowd. The the vulgus is the common people, and mobile means they move around. They just change. You never know what side they're going to land on. This is the phrase we get our word mob from. Mob rule is when the fickle crowd is telling the leaders what to do. And that's what happened. Now, what are the lessons we can learn here? We can learn all kinds of lessons. One of them is Jesus does nothing, but his purposes are achieved anyway because his purposes are aligned with God's. And maybe that's the best lesson of all, right? If you want to get something done, Align yourself with God's will, and it will happen. So maybe that's the best lesson. But I think there's some other lessons here. One of them is what the priests should have learned. Why did the priests go after Jesus originally? The priests become fixated on killing Jesus. Why do they do that? Well, John has told us the answer back in chapter 11. They said why. They said, if we allow him, Jesus, to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him and then the Roman army will come and destroy our temple and our nation. They say he is a threat to us because he'll excite the Romans against us. And we're so fixated on Jesus that we're going to ask the Romans to release a revolutionary who will go on like this, and then the Roman army will come and destroy him. And meanwhile, the Roman leader is trying to release Jesus. The Roman leader has no problem with Jesus, but we have become so fixated on Jesus that we don't see the absurdity of what we're doing. We're trying to let this man go, who, who will get us in trouble, and kill the man who the Romans have no problem with. So maybe another lesson is don't be like the priest. Don't fixate on your solution to a problem because maybe the solution lies elsewhere. and Just kind of keep your eyes open because maybe the problem will get solved somewhere else. There's another lesson we can learn. We can learn not to be arrogant. Pilate is so arrogant. Pilate thinks he can solve this problem. So what does he do? Um, I think there's something, yeah. So um, Pilate could have just kicked the can down the road. We read in the book of Acts, there was another governor about 20 years later who had an intractable problem. Right, He's got an angry Jewish mob and he's got the Apostle Paul who's been arrested for preaching about Jesus. So what does he do? He locks him up and for two years he keeps him in prison. It says, it says, Sometimes it says he wanted to gain favor, favor with uh, Jewish people. He put him in prison. So Felix just locks Paul up. <clears throat> Remember, he's the local authority. There is no habeas, habeas corpus. Paul's going to stay there until he says he can come out. So what does he do? He just lets him cool off in prison. If Pilate had been wiser, he would have done that. He would have said, it's the eve of the Sabbath. I'm going to put Jesus in prison. Nobody will be happy, but we'll revisit it on Monday a week from now. Okay? And then we'll see where we're at then. Or maybe we'll see where we're at two years from now. Or maybe I'll finish my governorship and I'll go back to Rome and riches and somebody else will get this problem two years from now. Right? He could have done that. But he was so arrogant. He thought, I've got all the power in the world. I can solve this problem. There is no problem I can't solve because I've got all the power in the whole Roman government. So we can learn not to be arrogant. We're not going to have as much power as he, but we can learn to be arrogant, not to be so arrogant and say there are problems I'm not going to fix and maybe the best thing I can do is put a Band-Aid on it and hope it gets better later. So those are some lessons we can learn, but I think the lesson most of us need to learn is the lesson for the crowd because the crowd is the real problem. The pr- crowd is governed By their passions. And this is the word passion we all know about. This is the, the barely controllable emotion. And this crowd, this mobile vulgus, they are governed by their ungovernable emotions. And that brings us back to the Twitter mobs. Because that's what happens. I like that post. I retweet that clever tweet. I am governed by i i am not governed i am i am uncontrolled and i'm allowing my passions to do things that if i were calmer i would think more carefully about so how can we be like the crowd i want to tell you one last story there was a man in 1936 a man named august landsmesser so uh, august was married to a woman named irma but they had a problem irma was jewish and in Nazi Germany, Gentiles were not allowed legally to be married to Jewish women. So August had a problem. And he uh, resisted. He didn't resist um, in the sense of joining an army or anything. He he was just not a fan of the Nazi government. He spoke out against it, and he was arrested, put in prison. And by the time they let him out of prison, World War II was on, and so they put him in what's called a penal battalion. I don't know what that is, but it's like a military where They don't care if there's casualties, I guess. So they put him in a, in a penal battalion, and he died in 1941. His wife, Irma, was put into a concentration camp, and she died in 1942. But there is one photograph that is believed to be a picture of August Landsmesser, and I want to show you a picture of it. This is a crowd um, of people giving the Nazi salute in 1936 at a shipyard in um, Germany. And we're going to zoom in on the little picture there in the circle. So this is August Landmesser. And I think what we all need to do is to be that guy, right? We can't control what happens with the pilots and the leading priests of our era, but we can be that guy with his arms crossed saying, you know what? Not me. Not going to play. This is not my thing. And it may cost us. It may cost us as much as it cost him. But you know what? We've been talking about power. We've been talking about the exercise of authority. The one person that August Landmesser had authority over was himself. And when everybody else was getting swept up by the movement and throwing out those salutes, August said, nope. Because he exercised his authority in the most important way. He exercised it exactly the way Jesus did. He controlled himself instead of other people. So, be this guy this is who jesus calls us all to be to be like him to be governors of our own passions and it may cost us but jesus said i know that but i'm going to go first and i will lead the way govern your passions don't be part of the mob let's pray father in heaven we cannot be like jesus But we pray, Lord, you'd make us more like August Landmesser. Help us to resist the passions of our age. Help us to engage in sensible reforms to address inadequacies and iniquities in our society. But help us to do so in a way that is governed so that we may not become tools of forces that are beyond our control. Help us to be people who are governed, By our authority over ourselves. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.